This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Learn more at bbg.org. This week on Meet and 3, we're examining the true cost of convenience when it comes to when, where, and how we eat. Dark stores enable workers to eat without any kind of thought to how they're getting their food or how it might have come to be. DoorDash, Uber, and Lyft in the past have pledged to spend $90 million to try to exempt themselves from the law. I could be wrong, uh, but I, I think there's going to be significant regulatory pushback on driverless trucks. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Good morning. We are back in the studio. Today is Thursday, October 10th, and this is the Main Course OG. I'm Emily Pearson, and I'm here with Patrick Martins, my co-host. Thanks for having me. Of course. Brandon, thanks for being with us again. Yeah, Brandon thanks Hoy. for having me. I'm back. You're back. You're back. We missed you for a week. And uh, Where were you? I was in Miami, Florida. You know the place? Oh, yeah. I have. I actually have a quick thing about Miami. Sure. You, you get. This is the one place that's already post-apocalyptic. Have you noticed this? <laughs> it's like the like in the whole world. This Miami's already post-apocalyptic. There's holes that open up and suck people's like uh, trailer park homes into the ground. There's also mosquitoes that bite you and shrink your baby's head. There's. <laughs> have, have we talked about this before? Zika. It, there's, there's also um, people who eat people's faces, zombies that eat people's faces. Which this part is, of Florida do I find those in? In South Florida, this is happening. The what was this? Bath salts. They were taking bath salts and then eating people's faces. Oh so God. there's zombies that eat people's faces. There's red algae that's growing everywhere. And Roberta right? thinks this is a good place for a new a new. No, location. I went to a bir- I went to a oh. birthday party. Okay, but um, it's mostly swamp. Florida has so much swamp in it too. Th- there's also like the water could could come in, surge in, and an alligator could be trapped inside your house. I know. I mean, they do have alligators coming up the toilets there. No, that's interesting. The first post-apocalyptic Patrick's been asking me for a heritage trip to Miami for like a year now. I think we're going to rule it out. I think we're out. No. In fact, when you got back from Miami for a wedding or something, I asked you, define Miami. And for days you were like, I can't. I don't like it's very complicated to define that city. It's like Las Vegas with a beach. Yeah, kind of. And then, but like, where are, the, where are the older people in Las Vegas? Like out in Henderson? Are you kidding me? Have you been to Las Vegas? Maybe. There's old people everywhere. They're all over the place. Yeah, that's like They're a- at the off the strip casinos, the Golden Nugget. Las Vegas population is even older than the farmer median age, which is like 72 or something. The Golden Nugget is awesome, by the way. Don't, don't, no, don't I'm not, bad I'm not mouth the Golden Nugget. Is I'm- that a metaphor? Well, we're just back from the North Carolina Meat Conference yeah. where we both did a show of the main course, and it was really good. We had all these fantastic guests, right? Two chefs, one farmer. 
uh, meat processor. Owner, yeah. Yeah. And it, one cure master. Correct. That, um, yeah, we're, that was an awesome live. It was a live recording and it's going to air. It should be uh, up in the podcast store later this week. It's where uh, I developed my new nickname, Patrick Keynote Speech Martins. <laughs> and uh, I showed my to do list, my little chicken scratching post it note up on a PDF. It was the first time I ever used that or PowerPoint. And I came, I came up with a great line for these, all these farmers mostly. I was like, did you know YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook are merging into one mega company? And they're like, oh shit, really? I was like, it's called You Twit Face. And they're like, all Someone right. used it later on in the day. Well, they I was were poking like, fun at the companies, not at them, you know, but. Someone was trying to express their social media presence or lack thereof. And he was like, well, when I do post on you twit face, uh, this is what I like to do. They're terrified by it. Websites, Twitter, Instagram. They're farmers trying to start a sustainable farming operation. And they're so petrified at their inability to work in that world. And it actually keeps them down. I mean, but this was a really cool conference. It was held in Charlotte. It's called NC Choices. They do it every other year. Um, and it was a, a mix of farmers, artisans, chefs, uh, and I guess processing companies, it was mostly focused on the pasture-raised, more sustainable movement. I'm just really looking forward to the, like, farming social media, like, farmers taking selfies on the tractor. Like, just, I just really want it all. Just the, the like, Miami woman version of, like, farm social media. Just, like, with a glass of rosé on the tractor. Just, like, taking a selfie you, with the p- pouty lips. Do you know And, like, the upward flash Do you know there are angle. dating apps for, yeah. for geared towards farmers? That's I think how, it's called Farmers Only. That's how Rita Newman met her husband. Yeah. So, happy Yom Kippur. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Emily? You Yom are. Kippur. Happy Jewish New Year to everybody. Thank you. you Did you bit, do anything? How was your breakfast? My breakfast was excellent. It was filled with uh, locks and but bagels and cream cheese. But isn't that Rosh Hashanah? No, so, Ra- we, so Rosh Hashanah yeah. is the is the New, New year. year that was last week. And then week. Yom Kippur is fasting time. Correct. Right? And, you, then and you fasted. I did. I was not here yesterday. I was off. I was at synagogue. And you were basically, it is the moment where you, the, the book is open and it's decided if you will be inscribed in the, in the new book for the new year. So people, were you inscribed? I sure hope so. I'm here today. All right. Good. <laughs> then I woke up this morning. I think that's a good sign, right? Well, happy year. What is it? 4994 for you or something? I think it's an even number, actually. I don't know what year it is. My business strategy of post-dating my checks to the Jewish calendar is starting to backfire. A lot of people are starting to complain, complain. We might not have enough kids to be able to cash the check. So, all right. Well, let's jump into the main. Yeah, we have our our first segment is the weekly based. Uh, And we're going to jump in with a game of word association and introduce you to all of our guests. We have selected two words or terms for each person with us today and ask that you respond in 15 seconds or less. This did not go over well at the conference this week. 15 seconds turned into about a minute and a half per person. So first we have Jack Log. Is it Log? Loge? Logue, Jack Logue, the executive chef of the Clock Tower at the Edition, and a fellow New York City kid, or man, young man, adult man. So your word association is mom and pop. Uh, let's go noble, hardworking, razor thin margins, and you've got mail. You've got mail. Ooh, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan. Reference. No, so why you've got-, got mail reference. Also with Tom Hanks oh, and Meg yeah. Ryan. Yeah, yeah, wow. You've Got Mail took place in New York. Oh, I see, I see. It's a real mom and pop story there. Oh, I see. I didn't never see the movie. I just figured you people, you were talking about people who still have Hotmail as their email <laughs> account or something. 
All right, your next word is clubs. Because you're Jack, I mean, your clock tower is like a club. I mean, you feel like you're in an old catcher's mitt there. Yeah, basically. But this wasn't a question for you, Patrick. Sorry. I just want to say the reason we gave you the word club is because you're essentially operating a supper club. Building yeah. tables. In a lot of ways, yeah. Although whenever I hear clubs, I, I have to go back to the summers of 05 and 06 because I pretty much spent my summer nights in clubs. And you I don't, mean, don't want to go like, back there anymore. Pre-tunnel, right? The tunnel didn't exist in 05, did it? Yeah, but we didn't say that duck club. We said duck the club. You're talking Although about like meatpacking. Duck right. club is much better than the club. Right. We like, were thinking more like club chairs, billiards oh, rooms. Well, lots of rackets. Clock Tower has a lot of these cool, small, like cozy rooms for for drinking, for socializing, for dining. Yeah, we're kind of a unique spot in that regard because you know I think we're the only Michelin star restaurant with a pool table in it. So there you go. Whatever that's worth. That's amazing. Brandon, can we find you in that club? You would love. I it. would be up in that club, no doubt. You would love definitely with like an air horn. Life. Do you think that would be appropriate? Come on. Like, also, I hope there's no dress attire because everyone knows that I just wear the I wear like pretty much sweatpants and t-shirts. Yeah, you're in a hotel. That's the beauty of hotels and why the service is so great. You can get a club sandwich in the elevator if you ask somebody. You know, they'll right. really break rules for you. I did just stay at the Edition in Miami. Miami, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. It's a beautiful. I recently went to the new, there's a new edition in Times Square, and I don't think I've ever said this before, but you feel like you're like outside of New York. It's this little oasis. You walk in, you go up to the ninth floor, they have this terrace restaurant, and uh, you just, first of all, the edition has its own scent, so you already have this like mental, you know, association that you're away, and you're you're outside of the hecticness of New York City and mm -hmm. Times Square. You hear a little bit of jackhammering, but overall, yeah. you're like... Away. A lovely part of New York where Clock Tower is, too, just at the base of Madison Avenue. So you have, yeah, it's a real special little nugget, golden nugget. Uh, all right, next. Next, we have Dan Miller, the CEO of Steward, which enables people to invest directly in sustainable farms. Steward is based in Portland and in London. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. So Hello. your word, is he suddenly British? American accent. I'm working on the English one. So your word is, or term, return on investment. It's about getting a yield on, not up putting up capital, but also your time and effort into something. So I find return on capital, but also the yield that farmers get when they put their efforts in. Cool. Your other one is longevity. So steward, the name was created for the idea of longevity with the farms. People thinking beyond their lifetime and their life cycle. So kind of stewardship and longevity go well together. Awesome. Now, th is that the big problem you would say in terms of the investment world is they have short-term goals and not long-term goals? Is that what Wall Street is? Yeah, or? that's generally the case. And with farming, you have to think so long-term. And so you have to put not only your money, but your time into future planning. Mm -hmm. And most investments are looking for short-term. So I think we're just trying to get people to understand they need to not only put their money to these farms, but they need to be patient and see them grow. It's like people, uh, very few people are patient, you know, like most people are like, oh, I'm going to work at this job for five years. But if you're going to work it the whole life or keep an investment for your whole life, then these type of investments are the good ones. Uh, if you're in and out and whatever your guy tells you, you're pulling your money here, you know, then sure. That's how we feel. next quarter. They're stable. It's land. It's long term. And I think we found that the farmers are committed to this for life. So they just want to get funding to move forward. You know, they're, they're taking the long road. Now, is this Portland, Maine or Portland, Oregon? Oh, Portland, very good question. Oregon. Great. 
Well, we we one, like both on this show. We're fans of both. But uh, there was one thing I, that David Newman quoted me as having said once, which I didn't remember. I say, if you go to a doctor's office and you see a Mercedes outside, you're like, good job. If you see a Mercedes outside a farm, you're like, that guy's getting paid too much. Well, you know, I mean, that's what I think the general thought is. Oh, this farmer, what's he charging for his pigs? He's driving a Mercedes. You know, it should be opposite, actually. But if he had like a $150,000 uh, tractor, how would you feel? <laughs> that's okay. That's true. Actually, though, yeah, I was going to say most farm equipment costs way more than a car. So who, we have just don't have a we don't have the, the knowledge. The, the air to... conditioned combine where you're literally burning oil to warm yourself inside of a machine that's spreading oil. All right. We are... Our next round is uh, we like this game. Fuck Mary Kill. We have London. No, we, we don't like this game. Uh, well, I don't know why you always prefer. I this was way. actually going like to say this game. nobody Brandon likes, this, likes game. this game. Brandon, this is the only time Brandon question in history this category of question where Brandon's like, could you repeat it? I want to give an educated answer. So go. We're going to repeat it. Would you do? You, do you know the question? Are you familiar? London, New York, Portland. Jack, Wait, you start. Yeah. Uh, all right. Definitely gonna fuck Portland. I've never been, so it's something new. Seems pretty, <laughs> seems pretty fun. Seems pretty cool. Up and coming, you know. Good. Pretty much down for whatever. <laughs> I guess I gotta marry New York though, because it's my home. So it means that the place that I represent as a professional chef, I gotta kill. London's out. All right. Well, yeah. London's been bombed before. Dan, you're uh, you're part time in London or full time. I will say, uh, for me, definitely fuck New York. It's a volatile place. There's a lot of emotions here. <laughs> Got stuck in uh, Canal for 15 minutes on the L train. So. Passion. We call it passion. Then I'd want to marry both London and Portland, but I'd probably say Portland has better ethics, so I'll marry Portland. Thinking with your wallet, huh? <laughs> She's like, I got all my money there. I can't kill that. Brandon, it's your favorite game. You got to chime in. Um, oh, man, I hate this game. Why did why do you force me into this? So many options. I know. I, I mean, I'm probably uh, I you, I probably marry New York. I think. Um, I know very little about London, so I guess I'll fuck London. Portland is such a. I feel so horrible. Like I've done something wrong if I'm going to kill Portland. It's just such a nice place. So nice people. Can I fuck them both? Like a menage sure. a trois. Yeah, yeah, you got. I'm going to have a menage a trois with you London. You can be in and a Portland. thruple. A thruple. Mm, let's fuck them all. <laughs> I love Portland, but the people there are so dirty. You know, I would I would have to kill it. And uh, London, you know, it'd be like fucking Dame Jame Duty Judy Dench or one of these great actresses, Duty <laughs> Dench. Anyway, all right. Did you just say Duty Stench. <laughs> he just said no. Duty on air. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Let's so, talk mentors. Yeah. Who it's is the transition. most Im- Who is the most important person you have ever met in your field? Dan, you want to start? I mean, for me, it's Wendell Berry. I've not met him, but I oh. am very inspired by him. I would like to meet him. I guess I'll have to go to Kentucky to meet him. So that's an interesting... St- you've read his books? Oh, he's, he's, his books inspired me. I mean, he's the, the thinker behind it all. Yeah? So, uh, right, there's the way he's... like, What is he? The American poet, isn't he? About the agriculture. agrarian poet, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Amazing. Chef Jack? Yeah, I mean, for me, I've been really, really lucky to have met some of my own mentors and worked for them. So, I mean, Daniel Blood has to be one of them. Working with him was one of the best experiences of my life. Uh, Neil Perry in Australia, and then currently working with and for uh, Chef Jason Atherton. You know, all of them successful, not only as chefs, but also entrepreneurs, which is what I'd like to do with my career in the future. And to work with them and see them as, as human beings and people and family men, as well as chefs, as well as businessmen, and watch their success has been both inspiring and very, very 
gives me a blueprint and a path hopefully. It's nice that you say family, man. That like that is something that you've come across in the mentors that you work with so often in this industry and with chefs that's not prioritized. So that's yeah, really nice that you've had that part, image. You know, that to, to figure out how to balance that and something that means a lot to me as a person as well and figuring out how to do that. You know, I've been divorced through this industry, so like I have a second chance now with my fiance, so I want to like that is a focus of mine. Hey, Brandon, I'm actually interested in how you would answer to this. Who's the top person in your field? Like, who have you learned the most from to run Roberta's? Well, what is my field? Restaurateur. Oh, okay. So we've narrowed my field down. Sorry, and basketball player. I was going to say wiffle. I was going to say wiffle ball. Yeah, wiffle ball. Yeah, like maybe professional wiffle ball player, flag football player. I'm a lot of things that most people don't know. Um,. Sorry, what's the question Who's again? Your mentor. I mean, mentor. Who do you, did you ever go into a place and study with a guy for like a month and be like, "This is how I learned the trade"? No, but I would say like some of the most influential, like Alice was probably like Alice Waters was very influential to to us and to me in the early days and her presence here and and like having her around was very influential and I think like just like philosophically coming from from the bay area and coming from from that place like she was probably somebody that that like philosophically i could i could like kind of relate to and understand um so I, yeah she's she was probably the most influential in the er, in the early days for me i think i think as time goes on you find people and and for me it's usually these people aren't in my field i usually look outside of my field to be influenced and to be and to kind of like gain more knowledge because it's like uh, unfortunately in your field it becomes a box and people start to do the same things over and over again and i like to look outside into other fields you know to to, to try to gain perspective on what you do dan who inspires you me told most? You. Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry. Oh, Wendell Berry. Sorry, Jack. We did. He's worth talking about twice. Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry, so I was going to say, also in the studio with us today is Chef Will Devlin, yeah. chef owner of the Small Holding, which is a restaurant in Kent, England. Were you yeah. on London time when you came to this? You were. Oh, it's pretty you late, wasn't I? Let's be honest. Five and a half hours early. <laughs> I wasn't going to blow up your spot, but you know, wow. uh, Patrick wanted to correct the Borum Hill time is not London time. <laughs> sorry, man. I do apologize I to everyone for a late. But uh, no, yeah, I've yeah, come over from England. We came a couple of days ago. Um, we've uh, just came to eat and hang out. And um, we've been to a couple of restaurants so far. And we're going to go to some more throughout our trip. We're up to the Hudson Valley, like, tomorrow, Friday. Cool. And so who would you say is uh, a mentor? What's the Who's the most important person you've ever met in your field? Um, like, worked with um, a, a guy called Richard Phillips. Uh, he used to um, run for Marco Pierre White back in London. He also worked for the Rue Brothers for years, and I worked with him for like seven years um, and kind of took my management position in kitchens through to sort of running the kitchen, to running a site, to really kind of understanding how the business works as well rather than just the kitchen. So not Dame Judy Dench. Not Dame Judy Dench. No, <laughs> never met Judy her. Dench. But I do like, so I met Jason at... Uh, 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 um, a thing called Pub in the Park in the UK. We both did a cooking demo. And, um, you know, I thought he was going to be quite hard, but actually he was super cool. And exactly like you said, family man. He brought his kids and his wife with him and we hung out. My wife was there with my daughter. So it was nice. It's, it's uh, People like that influenced me, like, from just meeting him, understanding how he kind of must run a pretty tight ship, but also always make time for what's important as well. Very That's good. We cool. also have another guest in the studio. So this is a really guest-filled show. I wish that we were uh, we were also like 
uh, live on YouTube or had a video stream for this one. We have a pretty full house today. We have Uli Sitter, who is sitting right next to Emily of Uli's Oil Mill, who dropped in studio with a little taste of pumpkin oil. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Pumpkin oil. It's grown in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes. And is this for your face? Or can you use this for everything? I'm going to ask you the same question every time you come on the show. It's meant to be drizzled. Hello, good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, you can for sure put it on your face. It's just a tiny little greenish, so maybe you do it in the evening. <laughs> but it's very nourishing. I look good in green. Yeah, it's, it all is your taste. So this is the only organic and locally grown pumpkin seed oil, stamp pressed in the Austrian tradition. And this is very unique because usually your Austrian style pumpkin seed oil is just imported. And over the years, it, it is a lot of seed infrastructure behind it and a lot of capital investment. Um, we have these pumpkin seeds now grown here in the Finger Lakes and I stamp press it in Long Island City. So a very famous regional Austrian Syrian um, speciality is now local to New York and New York City. So is the process, Austrian process, more important than the ingredient uh, being grown in Austria? So tetwar over terroir? It's the same, you know, the seed, you can grow it here. Okay. Um, but um, the process, you know, you need to cut the seeds, you add some salt and water, you roast it for one hour, then you stamp press it. So you can only do it in a stamp press and usually your oil is chemically extracted or expeller pressed like from biodiesel background so you need to have the variety and the process do you do the work yourself or do yes. you pay people to how how many hours are you in the plant what do you call it the, well, the shed it's it's the, the, the oil mill room? the oil mill so i press on demand seeds you can store usually 12 months under ideal conditions but once you press an oil you want to have it as fresh as possible so then how many days, like in a month, are you there for five days a week? It all depends on your orders. Ah, I see. But it, this, correct me if I'm wrong, but this should be the time of year that you would harvest the most seeds yeah. that will now, you will store for next year's production? No, so you let them rest maybe for one month or so, and then you start producing. Hmm. So can I like sell you my Halloween pumpkin at the end? Well, it's a it's a different variety. This is always the always trying to get some money out of the no, show. No, so this is not your jack o' lantern pumpkin, the orange pumpkin. So Columbus did bring these pumpkins to Europe two hundred years ago, like potatoes, like coffee, like many other things. But there was a natural mutation occurring, and uh, people realized in Austria there was a hullessness, and there was Georg Mendel around the plant breeding, and they specialized on hullessness and oil richness. So it's mm -hmm. a it's a steer in an Austrian pumpkin variety. It's completely different than your orange pumpkin. I see. Well, very interesting. So, Uli, I'll ask this question to you and then the rest of the panel. So, in this oil world, uh, what is your most reliable source for important information regarding your field of work? So, to learn about this field, is there a newsletter, a website, word of mouth? What is it? The Austrians. <laughs> Just the Austrians. No, in it's the seed culture. You know, here at farmers markets, people come. Oh, is this infused olive oil? No, olive. O there are no olive trees. You have in a healthy grain crop rotation, you can grow all these seeds. In Celtic Europe, you know, you had in in Britain, you have your raps, your rapeseed yeah, yeah, oil. Yeah. You have sunflower oil. This is like for thousands of years they had a local 
uh, vegetable oil source and it's non-existent here so you need to build it up it's like wesson yeah it's the worst <laughs> chef jack yeah actually kind of piggyback on what brendan was saying for a while there i really didn't want to know much about what was going on because i wanted to try to find some inspiration myself and if you if you are always too tapped into the scene or like what's what's new or what's hot or what's fresh and what everyone's using then i think it becomes so homogenous and it's a it's a risk that we run in in New York City a lot, I think, you know, because everyone kind of taps onto the same trend and then you see it everywhere and then it just goes away. So I try not to listen to too much, although Heritage Radio is now going to be my new Thank source you. of all information. Good but answer. By the way, every, Patrick, I know you were trying to make a sale off that. Yeah. Well, every time someone, I also worry, I think that just like you said, but then I think I'm also just being lazy and I'm like just trying to avoid reading or something. Well, yeah. you are you are doing both, yeah. actually. <laughs> I'm like, that's why I don't have to read. I don't want my creative juices to be stomped out. Right. So what about you? For me, it's going and meeting the farmers and actually talking to them directly, mm -hmm. seeing what they need, tasting their products, figuring out how to support them. So that's my favorite part, traveling around. Now, what part, uh, what will you look for in a farmer? What kind of like of those magical tricks do you have in your trade to know that you're not investing in the one trick pony or someone who's just saying the right things, but maybe not doing the right things for so the long their term? Passion is number one. These types of farmers that are obsessed about their products are just so passionate. So we meet them on the farm. It's really easy to feel in that inspiration from them. Also, if they've established themselves a little bit in some local markets, they have some sales, to local restaurants. They're actually already producing something. And so we're generally funding those farmers that are producing heritage products that need funding to help grow their business. They're already somewhat established, but it's that next step where they can't get funding to buy land, irrigation equipment, et cetera. So can you give us a, uh, an example of a farm that you've invested in that's uh, successful? Sure. Uh, one of the first farms we funded was an urban farm in Detroit. They've been operating on a tenth of an acre of leased land. They wanted to buy more land. They were having trouble getting funding because... An urban farm is, you know, not a traditional farm. So we provided funding for them to buy a few acres of land. Their sales have gone up about five, six times in the past year. They're supplying local restaurants, you know, about a half mile from the farm. And they've transformed what was a bunch of vacant lots with trash strewn into a, a community hub. So, you know, you see the tangible improvements. You see that they can achieve their livelihood. And most of these farmers get stuck at that point where they can't get to the scale they need to have enough income to support themselves. Mm -hmm. Got it. But what about you, Will? Where do you get your information as a chef in um, London? Well, I'm in a tiny village called Kilndown. It's like there's like 15 houses there, and then we've got the small holding. So, to be honest, the majority of inspiration is taken from the farm. Like it's on the same site, so literally we can see it from the kitchen window. So we're we're down there. We're seeing what's growing. We're seeing what's coming through. And also, I think most of the inspiration. You say you're working with farmers. You start to see the produce that you don't see in the grocery store or the supermarket. So like the cauliflower leaves and the, the dill seeds and like the, the fennel tops and all of the bits that get kind of trimmed off and put aside before we get to the market. So for me, it's that kind of inspiration, using ingredients that we can't normally get our hands on. Um, and yeah, just kind of working with the land a little bit. Patrick, where do you get your information from, huh? I'm actually a thousand percent word of mouth, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm probably 80% word of mouth, although I do read the paper every day. You read just the New cover. York Times every morning. But I don't read the articles. I just see what's happening. And I will, will read an article. But I basically think it's word of mouth. Think about it. all the chefs, all the farms. It's all phone mm -hmm. and text if it needs to be. We actually prefer it to be phone. Which is funny because I, 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 most of the time you're not listening to people. You're sitting there thinking, what's the next thing you're going to say to somebody? I know. I'm like, when can I interrupt? 
I was pausing. I was not interrupting. I was well, letting you complete your Oh, thought. I thought you were doing a comic <laughs> thing. Because you know what the secret of comedy is, right? Timing. Timing. So uh, what is your earliest food memory? Yeah, who are we going to start who with? Who comes from the oldest culture? I think He's us here in the person. United States. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, of course. Uh, Chef Will, you want to start? Everyone's looking at me. Um, the earliest food culture has got to be cooking with my dad. Oh, my mum and dad. Um, so, um, in a massive family, but there was like six of us growing up. So, we had like dinner time. Was all. It's not like quintessential, like I used to bake with my nan and stuff. But like seriously, we used to get involved with the cooking. So, one would be chopping something, making a salad. That kind of, everything started with onions and garlic. Like that kind of beginning of smell of the kitchen. I think that's that's the beginning of... Most of the food that we cooked, it was pretty simple, whether it was a bolognese or a chili con carne or something like that. Um, but yeah, it was hustle and bustle and people shouting. Well, and there's uh, one culture that's universally considered one of the very best for food. It's England. <laughs> Sorry. You're allowed well, to punch him, Chef. You're allowed to hit him for that one. Come on. All right, so, Dan, I'm ready. I've got thick skin. Don't you're, worry. Dan, you're living in London. Can you vouch for that statement? London's changed a lot. England and London, city? you know, they're different places. Um, for me, it was growing up, going out crabbing my father in the mornings out on the Chesapeake Bay, getting some Maryland blue crabs, uh, having big cookouts with our family, steamed crabs, sweet corn, tomatoes, all the good stuff. So that, that was my connection. And you wanted to get into agriculture as a result of those memories? Yeah, I think so. My mom's family's been farming since the late 1800s in the Eastern Shore of Maryland. So I grew up in D.C. but had that connection. And you saw what was a diversified farm economy just collapse from big ag and soy and corn and broiler chickens and all that exciting stuff. So I, you know, steward for me was how can I provide resources to the farmers that want to do good work in those types of communities, and then realize that same kind of industrial destruction is across the whole country and world. So my personal story is really uh, many of the same story in people's home regions. Hmm. Chef? Yeah, I mean, I got I was very lucky to have grandmothers on both sides of my family who are really talented cooks. Um, but one thing that's unique, or someone growing up in New York, my dad's actually from Kentucky, and so his dad was a farmer actually. Uh, year you know at 86 i think he finally stopped going to the farm every day um but his wife you know is a a phenomenal cook my grandmother and their parents were phenomenal cooks and so having uh, my granny lester's fried chicken will always be like my first like mind blown food memory and it was you know i would be out playing sports all the time and like out in the fields and everything like that my granddaddy would come home from the farm we'd all sit down you know probably like 20 of us and then we'd have this fried chicken and it was just like everyone was skillet fried you know in in the dark skillet and it was just Super delicious. And then on the other side, you got to have grandmother's meatballs. So a Puerto Rican lady learning how to cook her mother-in-law's Italian meatballs is oh, wow. priceless. Right Puerto there. Rico and Italian. Do you have an homage to either of those dishes? Have you ever put them on your menu? Uh, not in the way I probably should at some point. You know, But I feel like that'll be more of a personal personal thing when I do. Yeah. Cool. Uli, oldest food memory? I don't know. I went with the empty milk can to the farmer next door and... You know, of course, we would drink all that unpasteurized milk mm-hmm. and walking into our little town and picking up the bread from my aunt, who was a baker, a baker and it's a 900-year-old recipe, you know, from a monastery. So food was all around. We mm-hmm. grew red currants, cherries, we made sauerkraut, you know, mm-hmm. apple juice, whatever, you know, it was. Sure. Well, I'll say that that was would have been my answer. Milk, of <laughs> course. That's what the only thing you eat for a year. 
when you start. And I do think milk needs to be preserved. This is a great idea. And it's nice to see that it's starting to take off, you know, almond milk, oat milk and all that. That's not really milk because like a nut does not lactate. So I think they should spell it the same. This is the great compromise. Spell it the same, but it's a soft K. So milsh, oat milsh. We got a text from one of our chefs the other day. Maybe it needs to be spelled M-I-L-C-H, but then everyone's happy. That's German for milk, so. Oh, is it? (laughs) All right, well. If, if Uli okay's it, maybe we can uh, Apparently, start a movement. Uh, we, got a, we got a text photo from one of our chefs, uh, Evan Tesler, the other day, and it was called Malk, M-A-L-K. And he writes, kind of like Milsh, you think? It is gum-free, gluten-free, oil-free, cold-pressed, unsweetened oat and almond milk. I don't think that's going to last very long they on gotta, the shelves. They got to tighten that up. That's, yeah. <laughs> that is not very that's, proper branding. You would not invest in that. So uh, what do you guys do for charity? Uh, yeah, I'll take this one. Chef um, Jack? Yeah, so, you know, with the restaurants, we do many different things in the community, like Madison Square Park and Tastes of Gramercy, and, you know, I'm doing one for uh, Autism Speaks next week, which is a really awesome, but personally, and yeah, personally, I'm very invested in, um, it's actually with No Kid Hungry and Share Strength, I'm on the chef host committee with uh, No Kid Hungry in New York, and I've been doing it now for about seven or eight years, and it's really just a great organization, and what I think is unique about it, not unique, that's, that's kind of condescending, but... It actually gets a lot of legislation done. We do go to Capitol Hill. We went to Albany. We, we got things passed. And I feel like doing charity and having these fun events, but then also seeing the legislative side work out is really what's rewarding for this one. Oh, it really humbles me. Mine was that I'm friends with Brandon. That was my charity. And, and you do a lot of charitable work with me. Yeah. Like, keep me standing. Give, give me $5 me, when you need it. Give me something to do on Thursday morning. Chef Will, what about you? Charities? Um, yeah, we work with a couple of ch- The main one we work with is a charity called Pilot Light, uh, which is a hospitality mental health uh, charity. It was set up by a couple of friends of mine uh, that have both gone through some stuff, and then um, they kind of wanted to change stuff, and they kind of looked down at some younger chefs and realized that there was a problem, right? And there's a drug problem, alcohol problem, loneliness problem, all of those things. And um, so we do some fundraising, we do some charity dinners, the main thing is just shit like pilot light. It's shedding the light to sort of let the guys know it's okay. We work, it's a national thing in the UK, but I'm an ambassador for it in Kent. Um, so it's about kind of bringing the, the scene a little bit closer. We're not like New York where there's loads of restaurants everywhere. Things are a bit more spread out. So kind of bring a community for the, for the chefs to kind of spend time with each other on their days off, realize they're not alone, realize they don't have to just go to the pub and get drunk. Like they can kind of, do productive things and kind of yeah share, spend time with each other. So Pilot Light is the, the charity that we work with. That's pretty serious. That's awesome. Yeah, sorry, got a bit deep. No, no, I like it. I <laughs> Emily, like don't, it. maybe don't tell your one where you just allow them to round up to the nearest dollar at your Walmart checkout. That that is not after that. Are you talking after about these the two guys. app called Acorns, <laughs> which is round up. I'm not rounding anything up at the Walmart. I, mean, I can't believe they asked that. So for me, we have a foundation at Steward called the Steward Foundation that gives grants to the farmers to do work in their local region. Um, a lot of the farmers are doing research around uh, climate resiliency and how to farm with less water and uh, in more sustainable ways. So we just try to link up with the farmers on the ground and let them do their work. Fantastic. We are going to take a very quick break, and then we will be back with a little bit more from Will, Dan, and Jack and Uli. Um, stick around. We'll be right back.
This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Harvest Homecoming, an old-school fall foliage festival, comes to Brooklyn Botanic Garden on Sunday, October 20th. Celebrate cider season with New York cider houses and kombucha makers, bringing hard and soft ciders and fermented drinks to try or buy. A pop-up farmer's market will feature heritage apples from local orchards. Groove to the sounds of fresh Americana music and world beats throughout the day. Bring your friends and family and make a day of it with hay rides, lawn games, a children's Halloween costume parade, and more all in the heart of Brooklyn. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org. All right, and we're back. This is the Main Course OG, broadcasting live on Heritage Radio Network from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. We have a full house today. If you've been listening, we have Jack, Will, Dan, and Uli with us. So Will Devlin of the closest town I know is Kent. Uh, So I don't remember the name of your town in in England. (laughs) We we read and heard that you grow and raise most of your ingredients. Uh, You have a a restaurant called The Small Holding. What is one thing that it's just not worth the headache to make or grow yourself? There's a question. Um, I don't know. He's obviously not read the outline. To be honest, like there's certain things that you churn through like stock vegetables, right? Let's be honest. We're all chefs. If you're you're chopping a mirepoix for a stock or something to braise, or like when we, we I buy a lot of that stuff from the farmers, like so local farms. I buy carrots and onions. So carrots, and onions, celery. celery leeks, it's not worth kind of, to celery's grow. difficult. Eh? Basically, a, anything in the mirepoix. Not we had worth. a problem, but, but we do grow them. We do grow them. We just use them as a little bit more special than just chop them up into a stock. We only have an acre, right? So when we're growing carrots, that kind of kills me a little bit to just. Maybe you need to hit Dan up for some uh, yeah, for some uh, land in Portland. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. But um, so we do. Oh, you know, an investor to maybe take on another <laughs> small holding next oh, yeah, door. We do need it. Well, we've just, just signed up to double uh, the acreage. We just signed up to uh, another farm that's literally I don't know five hundred yards down the road, and that's forty acres. Um, so we're going to be into uh, dairy and some more grazing room for our sheep and stuff like that. So, but anyway, the things that we don't grow are stock vegetables. I think it's the easiest way of saying that but we grow them individually we just showcase them a little bit more it's a little bit more special do you know you the other thing you don't grow is goat right but are you participating in goattober we, yeah so james yeah so uh so we, we yeah we love goattober over in the uk right it's uh it's a pretty it's a really underused meat and obviously goat's cheese is so prolific in the uk as everywhere now uh so yeah we james dropped off a goat to, uh, last week um so we've got it on as part of our we don't do canapes we do like snacks so um when you sit down, you get a cocktail or a beer. We give you a little platter of snacks before you start, and they're kind of all goat-based. Cool. Um, so, yeah, so Goattober is wicked. We love being part of that. Awesome. Goattober was started to stop food waste in the food system because male dairy goats were euthanized at birth oftentimes. Yeah. So that's why we started the project. Yeah, we started it at no Heritage kid left yeah, yeah, yeah. No kid left behind. That's no it, goat left behind. Amazing. Nine years ago, and it has traveled Still going uh, strong. across the Atlantic, and our good friend James Butler across the pond. Yeah, and I think they're just starting to do some bits in uh, Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, and yeah going worldwide, Australia. And in Australia. So. Just with that, that's so typical English. They go to the place where the goat's been around for 10 million years and like colonize a project that they've just naturally been doing. They're like, that was our idea. 
All day, all day. So Dan, tell us more about Steward um, and what's the greatest challenge you face uh, getting what you... So what's the, what's the greatest challenge you face with Steward? So Steward was created to allow people to invest in sustainable farms. They can go to gosteward.com and make an investment directly. Hmm. Um, what we found the challenge is that farmers have lots of opportunities to sell their products. There's more demand and awareness for what they have but it's still very hard for them to get capital and particularly funding that's flexible to their needs as a specific farm, not just a standardized you know, commodity farming. And so we found that, that the biggest challenge we have is making people aware and letting them understand that they can do more than just buy products from these farmers. They can actually provide the investment funds for those farmers to succeed. And the idea is creating these regional communities that products are sold directly, that those people are also funding the farmer, and you create these small microeconomic loops Whereas right now there's a global, you know, food system which um, is probably not the most efficient way to do things, and it's better to keep it local with the capital and the, the product. Is it like Kickstarter, where you sort of are then more in touch with that farmer, or you're more in the know about what's going on, or you have a relationship, or is it more just knowing that you're you're doing good? And you no, know, the goal is to really business. link people with the farms, have them understand them. Um, but it's actually an investment platform, so people get a return on their investment. They get dividends and interest payments from the investments they make. But they can come to the website, they can see all the different farms, they can select individual farms, mm. they can visit those farms. So it's really about creating those narratives and tying people together. Um, and then what we found, I mean, this is what this network's created, is that more people are trying to get involved and more people are interested in supporting these farms. So we just try to make it easy to find them. And looks like today we got our first farm in the UK. What, uh, what cool. percentage of the money you raise goes to the farms? 100%. It goes really? right through. So then who, uh, who, how do you guys make your piece? I mean, if, if money is made and dividends are paid, you take a share so of the dividend? We charge the farmers, the borrower, a one-time 2% loan origination fee when the loan is created. And then for investors, there's no fee to make an investment, and they pay 1% per year servicing fee. So if okay. they invested at 8%, 1% would go to us and 7% for them. I would never ask this of a for-profit business, but since you have to publish it legally anyway, what are you guys? A $10 million business? A $5 million business? I mean, what bracket are you in? So far, we've made 16 loans to farmers across the U.S. We've had one in Europe to a Swiss winemaker, natural winemaker. I didn't know if you'd else. already made the investment in his farm. That was <laughs> oh, it'll happen. It's There's coming. a handshake Give us 90 days. We'll be back. high-tech world. Okay, 16. Wow, that's impressive. And then $2.2 million overall. And then last week, we just launched the platform for investors so anyone can mm -hmm. come to the website gosteward.com and ah, very interesting investment. awesome that's fantastic everyone we encourage you to check out gosteward.com jack executive chef of clock tower how do you define born and raised new yorkers and tell us about what you're trying to do with your menu at the clock tower yeah i think born and raised new yorkers uh, we grow up quickly um and it, i think it's something that has actually helped me very much in my professional life you know because Age 26, 27, when I was the executive sous chef and chef de cuisine of Bethany, and then now as a, as a chef at, you know, not, not an old age, um, you basically have to be the adult in the room all the time. And you know, I have 70, 75 employees who mm. are looking to me to make it, all the you know, decisions, and wow. you, have, you have to be the adult in the room. And I think you have to be a judge, fair. You have to be fair. Absolutely. And you have to keep the, you know, the positivity in the kitchen and you know, keep everybody being honest and positive and having right attitudes. You're solving problems all day long. I mean, that's what being a chef is, right? You're, basically just solving one problem after another after another yeah, and you know you're trying to use your best judgment and i think that it really grounds you and humbles you and i think that's what growing up in new york does as well because you know by age 14 or 15 you're having your first beer or your first you know whatever and you know 
by the time you get to college and everyone else is doing it, you're like, yeah, I don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> like, I'm going to do something a little bit more serious or some more fun or enjoy the outdoors or whatnot. I think that it reflects in the professional sector as well. So you were like me, we would go to a Japanese restaurant and then everyone would oh, yes. put the cash down that they thought they owed and you would be like $280 short. <laughs> it, would fall, that, it would forward to Edward Piketty Chompy in high school to pay for everything. I have not thought about that in years. That used to always okay. happen. Okay. Everyone was like, I'm pretty sure I only owe 40 bucks. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, like <laughs> you get to the end and you're like, you got sti- whoever's like, sitting whoever's there last. Whoever's the last one standing is done. That's I'm it. like my three sockatinis. Here's twelve dollars. <laughs> have a great day. I gotta leave. Oh my leave. god, I haven't thought about the that. The amount in a long of restaurants time. that we've closed down. Yeah. As you know. Yeah. Anyway. Well, there are also you know certain bars that city kids learn that they just didn't care if you were underage. So, and then what about your menu? Is yeah. there uh, some New Yorkerness that you put on your menu, or or is it Kentucky roots? Or uh, no, definitely. I mean. Something I want to do in whatever my next project is, is actually trying to establish and find like the identity of New York cuisine. I think it's a really fun thing that some people have tried, and I really want to, to go into that. Um, but for now, at Clock Tower, we have a really cool thing that we're actually switching over to, like really taking on a lot of a lot of British, kind of not classics in their composition, but you know, classics in what they what they are and how they can be you know utilized, but then making them very very modern and progressive, and utilizing all the New York ingredients and really like showing that marriage between you know, Jason Atherton's roots in Britain mm-hmm. and also my roots in New York and kind of weaving that in. So it's actually a really fun thing. We've just started it over the last couple of months. And, uh, Will, it sounds like it you up. need to make a stop at the clock tower while you're oh, yeah. here. Yeah, well, we're back in Manhattan in like on the High Queen's Market. Yeah, it's perfect. So, yeah, come on. It's in. like, a, it's like a, at the old we'll cricket open. padding, leather, you know, it's like a leather mitt over there. It's very, very nice. And Uli, what's uh, what's next for you, and why is uh, oil so important? Why should our listeners be excited about this pumpkin oil? Well, I make other oils as well. It's just um, your local and healthy, um, yeah, source of you know vitamins, you know, flavor. It it has so much in it. All these oils are so complex, and you drizzle it over as a finishing oil, or you just put it on your face. You have these uh, press cakes as proteins for baking or meat wraps. Uh, it's it's endless, and it's just empowering the local farmers, the local you know society, make, giving uh, you know giving, building up an infrastructure not to just have these investment banking jobs to certain sectors, a more even society, mm-hmm. and you know biodiversity. My Camelino oil, four thousand year old plant from Celtic Europe, thirty eight percent of omega three. It's a local plant based omega three source and attracts. 80 different wild bees so it's just a more beautiful if you got if you take over with your idea i mean you're going to overturn the american economy you're going to be fifty thousand times worse than elizabeth warren to wall street everything's going to be local traded there yeah, and all the cosmetics think about that you have all whatever you know you have in you, you don't product. test on animals do you at your uh, oil mill but i test on myself that's right right <laughs> I'm a, I'm She's looking a little green today. Yeah. She's testing on herself. Can we uh, can we taste the pumpkin oil as we? Oh yeah, we we'll give you up? our honest opinion. Word association. Well, Everyone gets one word uh, with possible uh, dashes. Okay. Let's drizzle it. That would have been a much nicer photo if I was just. Yeah. Okay. It does leave a little bit of a green color on your skin. delicious oh, i like it warmth i taste peanut no no one else does pumpkin obviously 
Chef Will's thinking over there. Is this it a seed? So I, I read that you grow in, at the small holding 200 fruits and vegetables. Yeah, we grow some pumpkins, but not the same. So I've used... Um, yeah, so we used to make a... Um, remember the name of the variety in English but we used to make a souffle with these green pumpkin seeds yeah, yeah. and then you, we drizzled the oil in the top over the top of the ice cream and it yeah. was amazing that just took me back to that memory so, yes. uh, it's kind of caramelly toasty like malty slightly mm-hmm. yeah delicious I'm and this is the press cake so I press so gently with my wonton stamp rolls five kilos in one batch so I have a very you know valuable side product and it's for baking for yeah. you know but you can taste it too <laughs> Patrick what's your not word not too much uh, for this, yeah. Well, you know, it has the even though it's an oil, it has the thickness of peanut butter almost. It has the texture of peanut butter, so it goes to show that a natural plant can create such a thick. What is peanut butter? It is a butter it's a protein. No, but it's a fabric. The 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 texture of peanut butter is spreadable. This is almost a spreadable oil. You almost picture your knife like that if you flipped your knife at an angle it wouldn't just slide off. It, this is heavy. It has substance. I know what you mean. I think my word is nu- my word is nutty. Even though it's not. All right, guys. Well, this has been a great show. Yeah, thank you all for joining us. We hope you will all take the time to uh, visit the Clock Tower, visit the Small Holding, learn more about Stewart, and check out Uli's Oil Mill. And uh, stick around for Taste of the Past up next, and we'll be back next week. Happy Gotober. The main course OG is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.